So welcome to the men's workshop meeting. My name is Tim. I'm a compulsive overeater and your moderator for this meeting. Hi, guys. Please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Before we get started, we ask that all cell phones or other electronic equipment be turned off. Even if you think it's off, please make sure. The session is being taped. To protect our anonymity, no photograph, no photography, audio, or visual recording is allowed. The opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA members and do not represent Region 2 or Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. Please remember two-hatters, i.e. OA members affiliated with related facilities or other 12-step programs are requested to speak on the recovery in the OA program only. An Ask a Basket will be circulated for the question and answer portion of this session. If there is any press in this room, please respect our anonymity by not taking any pictures, using a video camera, or using our full names. The format for this session is as follows. Two speakers will share for 20 minutes each, followed by 10 minutes of questions and answers from the Ask It Basket. The topic for this session is men. Our first speaker is Jim. How's that for a generic topic? Uh, <laughs> hi, my name is Jim. I'm a compulsive reader. Hello. Uh, yeah, with a topic that broad, um, I, I was having trouble figuring out what exactly that was supposed to mean. Um, and uh, I kept asking HP because that's all I know how to do. You know, when I'm, when I'm confused, I ask HP, I want some direction here. And... Uh, and I didn't get any all day, you know, and I'm sitting there going, so what, what is this? What is this? So um, uh, literature helps me. And so uh, I, th I was trying to think, okay, what kind of training did I get um, that program is helping me sort of unget from being a man, that kind of thing? Um, and one of the things that strikes me uh, by this massive turnout of male members, uh, and I'm thinking, okay, half the population's male and all of that kind of thing, um, is in the AA 12 and 12, there's a, a nice little paragraph that explains one of my basic problems. So I'm thinking, okay, where, where am I starting from? And it says, um, but it is from our twisted relationships with family, friends, and society at large that many of us have suffered the most. We have been especially stupid and stubborn about them. I like the program this doesn't mess around with kind of uncomfortable with or whatever. It just says, you know, we're screwed here. Um, the primary fact that we fail to recognize is our total inability to form a true partnership with another human being. Our egomania digs two disastrous pitfalls. Either we insist upon dominating the people we know or we demand from them far too much. If we lean on them too heavily as, uh, on people, they will sooner or later fail us for they are human too and cannot possibly meet our incessant demands. You know, I can't meet my incessant demands, no reason somebody else should. And in this way, our insecurity grows and festers, and when we habitually try to manipulate others to our own willful, willful desires, they revolt and resist us heavily. And then we develop hurt feelings and a sense of persecution and a desire to retaliate. As we redouble our efforts at control and continue to fail, our suffering becomes acute and constant. We have not once sought to be one in a family, to be a friend among friends, 
to be a worker among workers, to be a useful member of society. Always we try to struggle to the top of the heap or to hide underneath it. This self-centered behavior blocked the partnership relationship with any one of those about us. Of true brotherhood, we had small comprehension. And um, that was really helpful for me to have that sort of spelled out that I don't know how to do relationships. So it's not surprising that it's tricky getting into program because program says it's a we program. We get to do action, but we get to do action with other people. And, uh, you know, it, it's sort of like people sitting every other chair is extremely common because the chair is safe. It's a safe distance and all of that. Um, and so most of my life I lived in fear. That was my basic thing. Um, my dad uh, was very gregarious, friendly, never met a person he didn't like. And I was terrified of everyone. So we didn't have a whole lot in common. Um, and then he was in construction, and he really wanted me to learn construction, and I'm uninterested in construction. Um, and then my dad didn't get an education because when he was growing up, and it really helps me sometimes when I'm thinking about how program helps me work through stuff as a man is to get the idea that my dad, uh, when he was growing up, his stepfather told him, you cannot go to school past third grade, you're going to work on the farm, you're done. And he always loved learning. So he just died a year and a half ago, uh, and at 90 and demented, he still was trying to learn stuff. You know, he was trying to learn how to run his damn computer. When he, he'd take a class, he'd go home, he couldn't remember what happened between the class and home, but the computer just didn't work at home like it did at school and that kind of thing. And so he really pushed education, education, education. So not surprisingly, you know, I have lots of education and all of that. Um, so I think one of the things that's helpful for me to get a handle on in program is, is that there's a lot of social pressure and competition and trying to be something. And that that pressure isn't always in my best interest. And when I turn to food for that, like when things are too too scary, uh, you know, food is a great thing, and I learned that from my dad as well. Uh, my dad would go to work. He would kindly remind me that he had to work two jobs because I was sick and needed medical care, and he kindly reminded me that we moved to California from Illinois because I needed to get to dry climate, you know, and all the things that made him work more because I existed, <laughs> which was, you know an interesting way to go about it. So in program, I got to work on that. You know, it's sort of like, do I want to, when my dad died, we actually loved each other? But I could say that there were large chunks of my life where I lived in the same town and never saw him. Just never went to see him, never called him, he never called me, we just didn't do any of that. So I think program is a really great way, in a sense, to heal enough to be able to have some relationships. Um, and uh, the other thing is I think, I don't know, the, that idea that somehow or another there are going to be these big magical transformations is something that appeals to me as a man in terms of um, I would just like to fix something, have it fixed, have it be done, and move on to something else. You know, I don't want to linger and progress. I want to you know, go in, I recite three prayers, 
well, we got five minutes. That should be enough. You know, and then I turn around. And the same thing with losing weight. You know, my dad used to eat a dish of ice cream every night to honor the fact that he was working so hard to pay for his family. And he felt he didn't get to go to school and he didn't have the job he wanted. And so this dish of ice cream was sort of the reward he got for sacrificing his self to us, right? And so when, when I'm looking at, at food as the answer to stuff, um, it really helps to know that a lot of my changes are slow, they're tiny, they take forever, and I need to develop some kind of patience with that and to ask for some help. I still don't do that well. Uh, asking for help is like pulling teeth for me. Um, I have a lot of people in my life who keep yelling at me, saying, you want some help with that? And that's kind of a good clue. If somebody's asking that, it looks like I'm working too damn hard. <laughs> and it, it takes me a while. And sometimes I still just say, no, no, I can handle it. I can handle it. Um, so that slowness, I read today's uh, day book for, for today on the 28th, and it talked about courage. Courage does not always march to airs blown by a bugle, is not always wrought out of fabric orientation wears. Courage can be a silent act, a quiet word, a refusal, or an acceptance. Courage has no guarantees or certain outcomes. It is a risk taken on an unknown path. Courage brings about change. Growth is dependent on courage. Today I can risk because I'm not afraid to make a mistake. Uh, that's not true <laughs> for me, that I'm not afraid to make a mistake. But it says here that that could be true, which is hopeful. Uh, I am ready for change. I hate change. But that's program, right? I can make choices not out of fear or recklessness, but out of new willingness to resolve old problems, to rid myself of old ideas. For today, I procrastinated out of fear of failure. Have I enough courage to examine that fear? So, um, I guess the good news uh, in recovery is that with fear being what ran my life mostly, fear of everyone and all relationships, is that in recovery, uh, if I could do this program alone, I would. You would never see me at a convention or anywhere else or a meeting. You know, if I could just read a little book and go, okay, we got 10 minutes, I'm cured, and I'm out of here, or if they had a magic pill or any of that sort of stuff, and my life would be hell because that's what it was. When I was eating, it was like I was scared of everybody, and, and at the end of my day, I ate to celebrate that. I started overeating when I was in junior high because relationships started to look important. And there were a lot of people around, some of them female. And I got anxious. And when I got done with school and got home, I thought, thank God I made it home safe. You know, And, and I made it through another horrible day. I'm going to have another lunch. So I'd have another lunch. And then after dinner, then I'd remember my dad had ice cream, so I'd have another dinner. And pretty soon I had what they sometimes say is a good thing, six meals, but they weren't six small meals. They were six getting bigger meals. Um, I'm also supposed to qualify, which I totally forgot at the beginning. Um, I've been in program uh, like 28 years next month in July, July 4th. Um, and um, my weight loss is like within, my weight has stayed this 
wait for all of that time pretty much and uh, it's been within about 10 pounds of this. Um, and my sense of well-being is that it has stayed that. What I used to do is like lose 20, 30 pounds and then if when I was living at home, my parents would say, oh, it's so great you've got that willpower. <laughs> it's wonderful, you know, and they would be sort of cheerleaders for me. I'd get to the bottom, stay there for about 20 minutes, and then I'd start gaining again. And then they got quiet. They never said anything. I thought, hmm, there's something wrong here. You know, I gain, they shut up, I lose, they go, where you go, Jim? You know, and so that sort of kept going for a while. So for me, staying steady is not a bad thing. Um, the other thing that happened that got me into the program was that um, diabetes runs in my family. And I went to a doctor like two years earlier for a physical, and he said, you're overweight, you've got so much diabetes in your family, you're going to have it. It's when, how bad it's going to be, how many limbs you're going to lose, and how miserable you're going to be when you die. He was a really subtle guy. And so I, I thought, shit. And, I, and he said, so I want to see improvement next time. So the next year I went in and I had gained 10 pounds. And he said, you didn't listen to me last time, did you? And I said, oh, yes, I did. And I promised myself I was going to lose the weight. And something happened. You know, he said, well, next year, better be gone, you know. So the next year I went and I gained another 10 pounds. And he said, I can see you're not one of those people that listen. So he said, I'm going to show you something. So he had me sit down while on my chart he wrote obese. And he wrote that when I'm exactly the weight I am now. Actually, like three pounds more than I am today. And he wrote obese and he said, that means that you're going to die. It's on your medical chart for the rest of your life and blah, blah, blah. And for some reason that stuck. So I, I came into the program. Um, and what's interesting is when I go to the doctor now, because now I'm 62 and I was in my 30s then, it, when, I, you know, when I go to the doctor now, he looks at all my blood work and stuff and says, gosh, you're really healthy for someone your age. And I hate that for someone your age part. Um, so I'm, I'm waiting for the time when he just says, you're so healthy, and just lets it go. But um, So the bottom line is that, that my fear of people got me eating to mellow that out. I Basically, I think my higher power wants me alive and doing life, and I want to eat, hide out, and kill all feelings. Um, when I first got in program, somebody told me, you know, uh, when you have a good, a good thing happen, what do you want to do? And I said, eat. And he said, when a bad thing happens, what do you want to do? And I said, eat. And he said, well, then what you need on your refrigerator is a list of things you like to do when things are going well and of things of food that are safe when it's not. And I put that on the refrigerator, and that really helps because I don't know how to do good or bad feelings. I just don't do feelings very clearly. So what's happened over time is I get clearer on my feelings. I get into relationships. They force me to grow since that's not my first choice. Um, and I'm really grateful for that. And I have a way to live today, which I didn't have before. So that, that idea of courage, um, that's sometimes seen as a male quality. I, I teach uh, community college students, and I ask them, you know, what do you, what do you see, what do you like about being male or female, right? And, and what do you like about the other sex? And women always say about men, they're egocentric, they're stubborn as hell, they think they're better than us, blah, blah, blah. 
right? Um, and men talk about how I love to be in charge and I love, you know, and, and then what they don't like is they don't like the pressure that they put themselves over by wanting to be in charge and take care of So it's kind of this really confusing thing that we get. And program says, here's middle ground, which I really love. My disease says here or here. Either you're cowering in the corner or you're courageous running off into battle or some bullshit. So it's, you know, it's like two extremes. And program is saying there is a middle way. There is, there is ground there to stand on. So what I like, um, I've been working on this. People give me little uh, sort of spiritual exercises. And um, the one I'm working on currently is whenever I do something, no matter how small, fairly well, is I compliment myself for it. The other day I was walking around um, in the office and um, I, uh, I, all I did was put two bulletin boards on the wall because uh, we changed offices. And that's not a major carpentry trick. You know, it's like two screws in the wall, thank you very much. And one of the secretaries saw me smiling at myself. And she said, what the hell are you smiling about? You know? And I said, well, number one is I didn't ask permission to hang these two woolen boards. I just got the screwdriver and a couple screws out of the office and put them up there and followed what somebody told me once, do what you want to do and then apologize if the person doesn't like it. And then it's already done and that, that's too late and apologies fine. So I put them up there and when I was walking away, I just thought, this is really good. You know, I didn't. I didn't make a big deal out of it or anything, but I did make the choice. I did choose. Uh, and that's, that's the middle ground, is little things, um, uh, bigger things. Uh, I got married, I got divorced, and I'm now married again. <laughs> and getting married the second time was harder than the first time. I don't know if any of you have had that experience, but you get out of one marriage, and I was a little gun shy. So I had the three kids I was raising by myself that we had. And uh, I did that for like eight years, never dated. And finally, I, I told myself, okay, these kids, they're going to leave home eventually. What do you want to do then? Right? So they leave home, and I figure, okay, it's time to start dating. I find somebody in program, which was great. We got to know each other. And she said, you know, I, I, I think it's time for you to ask me to marry you. And I said, oh, <laughs> really? And um, at the time, the big discussion was how long should a woman wait before the guy asks, before she decides, well, you know, screw it, I'm going to go find somebody else and I'm not wasting more time on your life <laughs> kind of thing. So I said, okay. I said, before I do that, though, I said, I'm in a different spot than you. She wasn't married before I was. I had three kids, all this stuff. So I said, so I'm telling you I'm leery. I don't want to make another mistake, you know. And I said, tell you like where the mistake was uh, the first lady I married um, I picked uh, an alcoholic who uh, had two kids I didn't want any uh, she smoked I had asthma and uh, she was trying to figure out whether she was a lesbian or not and of course I was drawn to her so <laughs> and so that was the first marriage. So after eight years of not dating and just raising kids and all of that, and then you're thinking of asking somebody again, for my side, I just thought, oh, man, you're going to do it again. You're going to pick somebody who's going to ruin your life. So, um, 
And, and I knew I didn't want to eat to find my answer because I figured that's not really going to solve anything, right? So what I did instead was um, in the 12th step, in the AA 12 and 12, if you're not familiar with that, it has a whole bunch of stuff about how to um, do this program in all of our affairs. And there's a neat little section in there on relationships, boy meets girl on OA campus, AA campus for them. Uh, and that sometimes that can cause problems because we think we know somebody when we really don't. So you listen to somebody at meetings over time and they're sharing stuff and there's a sense of intimacy that builds up because they're sharing intimate stuff and you think you know them and you don't. So it was, you know, it's, it's like my first attraction to her was she came into a meeting. I had seen her for a while. I was attracted. She came into a meeting crying once because some dreadful thing had happened on a trip. And I immediately want to go ask her out because that's how I'm wired. You know, it's like, oh, you're in pain? Let me help you. You know, and so then I told myself, okay, what are you practicing? I'm practicing not asking people out until they're stable. So I waited to see if she stabilized herself. She did. I asked her out. And in, in the 12 and 12 here, it talks about all the stuff to think about cautions about relationship and um, there's a really I don't know if I can find it quickly but there's a really great line on uh, marriage uh, let's see if I can find it quickly uh, yes this is uh, for those who are like me who don't know how to do relationships uh, our main problem is not how we are to stay married it is how to be more happily married by eliminating the severe emotional twists that have so often stemmed from compulsive overeating or alcoholism. Um, and that struck me that I'm not getting married so I can stay married forever. <laughs> I'm getting married and the goal is to put energy into this relationship so the relationship quality gets better. And and so what, what I was taught to do is you read these paragraphs about getting married every day for a month and write what you get from it. Because you may have noticed when you read literature, it sounds different every time you read it. Even if you do it daily, it sounds different every time you read it. So I kept writing and writing and writing. Finally, I got to the point where um, what I was being directed to do was to turn the whole marriage over to my higher power. Uh, that, in fact, I couldn't control it. I really like control. I like to think I have it. It's an illusion. Okay? And, and so what I, w what I got from reading all of that was HP's in charge of all my relationships. HP's in charge of whether this marriage will work. My footwork is to try to do as much as I can to improve the quality of the relationship, and then HP will decide whether it lasts or not. Um, for some reason, since I was really little, I know that everybody in my life is going to die or I will. That any relationship I've got is going to end. There are no permanent relationships. You know, it's sort of like you get in one and they die, they leave, they go, whatever, or I do. And so it's, it's not going to last forever. And who's in charge of that HP is? So it, it, it gave me, a, you know, when they say faith and fear, kind of thing. It gave me the faith that HP is really running this. And if I trust that, then I'll have this person for as long as I have this person. And if I keep trying to make the relationship better, I will learn skills 
and I will be doing my part. And then it's really just whatever, you know. So uh, my wife, who's my wife now, uh, by that time was saying, come on, come on. She wasn't too happy that it, I had to pray about marrying her. She sort of thought, don't you know you love me? And I go, yes. And she goes, well. And I go, yes. And I'm also afraid. <laughs> so so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this how I'm directed. And patience, please, you know. And so we got married. So we get married. And one of my exercises I was given early on was about fear. Anytime I'm afraid, I say to her, I'm afraid. So we're laying on the couch. And I say, I think you're leaving me. It feels like you're leaving me. She says, I'm sitting on the couch next to you watching stupid TV. <laughs> what makes you think that? I go, it's not a think, it's a feel. You know, it, I, I just feel like you're leaving me. And if I say it out loud and you sort of react like you just did, then it goes away. If I leave it up here, it grows. You know, every move seems like a leaving move. So um, I'm very grateful to this program that if, if I weren't such a fearful person, probably I wouldn't have turned to food and probably I wouldn't need to do all this stuff. But that's not true. That's who I am. That's the, the person I am. Uh, coming up here to keep you current and be current, uh, my wife loves to travel. I hate to travel. Uh, when I travel on the road, I like to set a destination, drive like a bat out of hell, get there and stop and rest. My wife loves to stop 35 places along the way to look at every antique shop ever created. She sees the word antique and... So I'm driving and we don't have a whole lot of fun on trips as a result of that. <laughs> but um, this time I prayed before we left. Another novel concept, ask God's help. And, and HP basically says, you know, you could try this and just see how it goes. So I gave up control of time and stopping. And there's a joke about, you know, a happy wife is a happy home kind of thing. It ain't a joke. <laughs> there's something to be said for that. So we're driving up here, and the first place she sees, she goes, oh, it's Carpinteria. Let's stop there, you know. And I think, okay, I'm going to see what this feels like to actually travel like she travels, right? And it's scaring me because I'm thinking we're going to be late and you know, all this stuff. And so we stop, we look around. I kind of go, okay, I'm going to enjoy looking around at bizarre things. She's going to look at what she wants. I'll look at things. So anyway, we get halfway up here, and she says, I cannot believe you're doing this with me. She said, I just thought this was going to be one of those fight times. Um, and... She said, you must be working really hard. You know, and I said, I am working really hard. <laughs> this might come natural to me. I said, I, she said, you must have prayed a lot before we left, too. And I said, you're damn right. I prayed a lot. <laughs> I said, I prayed a lot. I'm practicing a lot. And I'm learning a lot. You know, that there's some range in me that I didn't even want to look at or explore or any of that stuff. So um, that's the small courages. I pray for direction. I get the direction. I don't want the direction. I practice the direction anyway. I learn new stuff about me. And the program is about me learning about me, not me making my relationship work or anything like that. Um, it's getting to know myself because I did not start eating to find out about Jim. I started eating to lose Jim as quickly as possible and as completely as possible as far as that goes. So... Um, 
just for those who like hope, because I love hope. That's part of the reason I come here is to hear your hope. Uh, last sentence. His own character may still be gravely defective. Hmm. I wonder who that could be. But he somehow knows that God has enabled him to make a mighty beginning. And he senses that he stands at the edge of new mysteries and joys and experiences of which he had never even dreamed. That's the kind of promises we get. You know, I don't like change. I'm not saying I want experiences beyond my dreams and all that kind of stuff. But I do know my life gets better. My experience is that after, you know, 28 years, it gets better. Um, and, and that's because of this program. It gives me a way to live. It gives me a way to live in relationships and deal with the fear that shows up. And the fear is at work. It's at home. It's everywhere I walk. Right? Um, so uh, it was fear today. It took all day for HP to come up with whatever I just said. Um, and my, my favorite thing about speaking, I'll just close with this, is as I worry and I want to say something wonderful and all that kind of stuff, and then I keep turning it over, turning it over, and eventually God says whatever God's going to say, which is what somebody here may need to hear or me. Uh, and then I love afterwards when somebody comes up and thanks me for saying something I never said. And I think, oh, so it's about the hearing. What do I hear about what I say? What do you hear about what you say? And is any, you know, does somebody take out something out of here of value? So I hope that happens for somebody. You've got something of value. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Jim. Uh, our second speaker will be Lou. And if we could keep the basket basket moving a little bit, like a few questions at least. You guys will take pity on a senile old man here. Uh, I've never taken notes before. Uh, but that's, you know, that's when the process of getting seen on. <laughs> you got you got to have notes and other things. Uh, okay, I'm Lou, compulsive old reader. And, uh, okay, uh, here's some, uh, here's some stats. Some people don't care for numbers. Uh, I never really did, but uh, numbers let us kind of know where we're at, you know, and uh, what's going on, how we're different from what we used to be. Okay, I'm, um, I've been in OA over 30 years, never left. Um, Okay, I'm a 150-pound weight loser. Uh, I I did some of the some of the yo-yo thing. I got up to almost 400 pounds at one time. Uh, I'm from Chico, California. That's 100 miles due north of Sacramento. Um, I've been to all the conventions I think except two. Uh, of course, being up in the boonies, you know, 
It's not always easy. Um, okay, I'm 77 years old. I may be the oldest one in here. I'm not sure. But, um, and I tell you, it's getting old sucks, you know. <laughs> of course, I still take Viagra. That's to keep me from peeing on my shoes, though, you know. <laughs> uh, okay, I, I reached my bottom in 1965. Ended up in the L.A. County Hospital because the VA hospital in Long Beach was full. Uh, in a life-threatening condition. My weight was choking me. Breath, breathing. And... Uh, my, my diabetes was running wild. Uh, oh, on the photos, uh, I was going to tell you that. Uh, in the beginning, I just wanted a few photos in a little folder, and my daughter insisted on doing it for me, and she kind of overdone it. So Now, there's a few in the back there that don't mean anything. I put them there to you know, keep them getting lost and so forth. Uh, Okay, now where will um, So I became a diabetic in 1961, and that was a whole new ball game, being a diabetic and being a compulsive overeater. And it, because uh, every time I overate, I got sick. And uh, well, ten years ago, I gave up the needle, so I've been controlling it by nutrition and so forth ever since. Um, okay, I uh, had a drinking problem. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, and I, that kind of killed me on my food, too. I was a functional alcoholic. That's like being pecked to death by a canary. You know, but sooner or later, you know, I took care of business. I took care of... Uh, my family, but sooner or later that catches up with you. But every time I tried to go on some kind of food plan or diet, take a few drinks, I'd go down the drain. Just couldn't do it. And I become a drug addict because you know I took uh, diet pills. I had a permanent prescription from the doctor. He finally uh, took me off of them, or I was abusing them. So now. I've been a private detective for over 50 years, and that was part of our equipment. We go to Vegas and stay up all weekend and come back. You better have some diet pills or something. So when I couldn't get them to the doctor, I got them off the street. I remember my nephew, he was my pusher, and I don't know if any of you remember the old cross tops or not. You know, I really like those. Then they went into mini vintage. You get a thousand in a little baggie, you know, just little bitty suckers, huh? And he'd give them for me because I, you know, I didn't want to go out and hustle drugs, you know. And um, I gave him fifty dollars back then. The, the drugs cost uh, thirty-five, and he could keep fifteen. But when I was drinking and using, I'd get paranoid, you know. I said that that little sucker's ripping me off. But he knew that I would never count a thousand, or he thought so. But being paranoid, I counted every damn one of them. One day, it was 30 short. And I pulled my gun, and I said, Nephew, 
you do that again, I'm going to shoot you. And <laughs> he, uh, one thing I couldn't stand is a dishonest drug dealer, you know. They don't have any integrity. <laughs> so I went that route for about 15 years. As a private detective, I don't think I could ever made it, you know, because you know, being that heavy, uh, what I did, I used drugs like a chemical forklift to carry that bulk around, you know. And I was in Southern California. I'd quit the police department and with the intentions of going back. I took the test for LAPD. They said, Gain, you lose 20 pounds, you're in. I gained 20 and quickly went up to 300. Then I was really down the drain. I mean, it was all over then. You know. Got married and had five kids in five years. Boy, I, I remember when my son was born, I took my rent money down and got operated on it. So, you know, then, of course, that was my trademark as a private detective in Southern California. Everybody knew Big Lou. I was on, uh, I uh, worked some notorious cases. I was on TV sometime, and I was a newspaper sometime, and this type of thing. I never thought of it in terms of ego, but I suppose that was there. Well, that's about the only thing I had, you know, because being that heavy, couldn't ride on buses, you know, couldn't ride on airplanes. Little kids pointing their finger, look, Mama, look at the fat man, you know. And uh, so I had to, course, had a number of addictions, you know, not it. I was a compulsive gammer. Spent a lot of time at the horses was my thing at the racetracks. I came to Oklahoma with a horse race. Horse racing's in the blood, you know, so that was great. Um, I guess addictive relationships was there, too. And I, I thought I'd seen somebody here that give a talk on uh, relationships today. And that suddenly hit home. I, had, I remember having an affair with my first sponsor. You know, nobody told me you wasn't supposed, you're supposed to get a man as a sponsor. They said, you know, you got to wait a year at that time, you know, because men don't sponsor women, women don't sponsor men. Because nobody told me. She didn't say anything. <laughs> uh, but uh, I kind of blew my whole career because of relationship and addiction. Um, I, had a, I was a professional law enforcement person. I uh, got a, had a degree in police science, and, and it all went down the drain. Of course, the weight was the main thing. The weight was the main thing. That's what really done me in. And after I got so heavy, I just couldn't fight it. But so uh, after getting out of the hospital, I lost 40 pounds in two weeks. They didn't feed me anything. And I said, I, you know, I can't handle this anymore. I've got to get out of here. So I did the geographics. I'm sure most of you know what geographics are, where you go to some other place because somebody else will understand you better over there, you know. They said, long-distance phone calls are indicative people like us. We call further and further to find somebody to understand us. So I, uh, so I did the geographics to Chico. Now, I moved a lot in Southern California, but it was like a, like a squirrel cage, you know. I moved a lot right in one little circle, you know. 
So my best friend lived in Chico. That's how I come. I went there. Best, best place. Excuse me. Best decision I ever made because I, I raised my children there, and they all turned out to be fine young people. Of course, I. See, I was. I joined AA in '73, and when I quit drinking, I quit using, I quit gambling, and was able to make some decisions on my weight. But that was a slow, tough process. I was a hardcore compulsive over here. My present wife, 32 years, 33, I guess, she dumped me in 1980 because of my weight and my compulsive overeating. She sat me down and told me, you know, your compulsive overeating and your, and your food is uh, you know, it, it produced a, a terrible quality of life for me. You know, I just can't handle that anymore, you know. Of course, she knew that I was overweight when we were married and so forth, but you know how women are, they think they're going to change, you know. Yeah. Of course, I didn't, I didn't tell her I was a food addict. I didn't tell her I was an alcoholic. I didn't tell her anything. And she, she, she had a need to know all that, you know. Big mistake on my part. She needed to know all that. But she said, sitting down, said, you're the most kindest, most gentle person I've ever known. But said, I just can't handle it anymore. I'm thinking, if I'm all that great, how come she's dumping me? Of course, I understood. I didn't get angry or anything. I just walked off the sunset. And you know, <laughs> it's funny. Before... After I divorced my first wife, or she divorced me, or whatever, uh, between there and uh, uh, and my second wife, I used to go to a, a therapist, not for any real special reason, just see how I'm doing, you know. And uh, he said, "Lou, said your uh, your background on relationships aren't too good." He said, "What were you looking for?" I said, "Well." Look for no great things, but somebody's very bright, maybe educated, good sense of humor, a little bit athletic. And uh, I went on and on and on. So when I finished, he said, I don't hurt your feelings or anything, but said, what would a woman like that want with somebody like you? <laughs> I thought, that, that son of a bitch. Anyway, my, isn't it funny though, I married the exact same type of woman. She's here in a hotel. And, you know, she had to help me drive down because I didn't sleep the night before I come down there. I had narcolepsy. I take medication. Sometimes I don't sleep at all. And then the next night I sleep for 10, 11 hours, you know. You know and, of course, I'm dealing with all that stuff, trying to get some kind of balance because, well, that stuff drives me crazy. But, yeah, and she, she's slender. She has no addictions of any kind. She never says the wrong thing. She never does the wrong thing. She's she's a retired mental health therapist specializing in addictions and alcoholism. Just try living with somebody like that. <laughs> but, you know, her expectations for me in the beginning were just too much for me. And it wasn't until we parted that I was able to kind of get a handle on the food, you know. And as you can tell by the pictures, you know, you know there's a before and after and a before and after. And... Uh, being a private detective, though, 
he learned how to eat a full meal in five minutes and take off, and that was almost a daily, weekly thing, you know. And before your stomach had time to tell your brain, you were full, you know. And I ruined every piece of clothing I ever had, you know, by uh, eating in a, in a car. I could eat a 10-course meal in a car, you know, get where I'm going. You know. And uh, I remember Las Vegas one time when all my addictions kicked in at one time. Try that one. We, I was already on amphetamines to drive. We stopped at the Silver Slipper, which gets free food. That was the main attraction. And I, I'd stuff myself there. Then I'd go to the dice table because see, I was a smart gambler. I knew that you'd get 50-50 odds on the dice table soon. And then, of course, they'd start giving you those free drinks, too. And I think I had some good-looking honey on my arm. Of course, when the money goes, they go, you know how it is. And I'm, so here I'm gambling. And I'm very spiritual, so I'm praying to God for my point. <laughs> but they all kicked in at the same time, you know. I'll never forget that one. But one of the things that's kind of say, well, you know, I had uh, body reconstruction because see, I tried a little professional wrestling once, you know, and the weightlifting, I was like this. But then I blew my knee out big time, and when I quit, everything just dropped. And they, they took my boobies off and put them back, <coughs> along with the nipples, and they took the apron off. And uh, they wanted to take some of the stomach off, but I could die, <laughs> so they didn't do that. Now, I got 15 pounds of dead fat across my waist here, and the doctor said, you're always going to have that. You might as well learn to live with it. You know, so I do. Um, now, I've exercised all this time. As you'll notice, I don't have any that hanging fat on my extremities uh, because of uh, I work out. I play golf three times a week. I have my own cart. And I work out at the club every other day. How for years and years and years. And uh, I've had two knee replacements. I've had a bypass. Of course, I'm diabetic. All those things that the doctor told me in the beginning was going to happen to me if I didn't lose weight happened to me. Yeah. But, of course, you know, I've lived 38 years longer than I was supposed to. When I was 35, approaching the 400-pound mark, the doctor told me, you won't live to 40. So it was 38 years later, and I'm still kicking you. Of course, um, I might be in a... I, I used to kidding, I tell... I used to tell the people my age this. I said, well, when you get to my age... Most of you are going to look like me. I've still a little weight, uh, gray hair, uh, cripple, a little senile. <laughs> I've seen some of them cringe, you know. <laughs> and then some of it probably be partly too. I had one young fellow say, Lou, I can't, you know, of course, I was a, I was a policeman and I was in the Korean War and, and, and I was a soldier of fortune and I went all over. This young guy said, Lou, I can't believe you've been all the places you have and done all the things you did. You look like somebody's kindly white-haired old grandfather. What a compliment. That's what I've been trying to do all this year to reach that age where I'm a kindly, somebody's kindly grand, grandfather, you know. 
white-haired old grandfather. Here I am. All my kids have been, uh, grew up to be fine young people. I've had a lot of, a lot of serenity, a lot of joy in life. And, you know, if I passed away tomorrow, I'd be way ahead of the game, you know. And, um, so, uh, I, I could say, you know, it's, I mean, always saved my life. It literally saved my life. And, of course, other, you know, 12-step pro, uh, programs entered into it. But I, I'll tell you, compulsive eating was worse than any of them, by far. It was. Because anything that I didn't have to put in my system, you know, I, I mean, you know, that I could, I could kind of handle that, you know. But where I had to eat three times a day, it was just deadly. You know? And of course, the last couple of years, I don't know whether this is a plus or not. I have a high little hernia. And if I eat too much, I get sick. If I eat the wrong thing, I get sick. You know? So I got a built in, what, like, what do they call the, the alcoholics take? An abuse? <laughs> uh, of course, I take care of myself. And I exercise. And I go to the doctors, keep my appointments. I, my wife, boy, she uh, she monitors my food all the time, all the time, and uh, she don't pull any punches about it. So I, uh, how, how do we do on time? Okay. You know, haven't been so many places, done so many things. You know, I could, I could probably talk, talk all night long. So I'll try to. You know, I've never been on the big bench since I've been in the program over 30 years ago when I walked in the room. I've over eight many times. Uh, I kind of estimated one time. Of course, being a private detective is the worst business there is for any kind of addictions or, or food or anything like that. But I figured I'd been okay about 75% of the time. Like one guy in one of the 12-step program, he said, all I want to do in life is break even. That's me. I just want to break even, you know, and I've done that. When I start looking for greatness and fantastic, I get in big trouble, you know. Um, yeah, when I come back from Korea, you know, I was going to turn professional boxing. You know, I went to in at boarding school all my young life, and I boxed six years there, and off and on five years in the Army, and when I come back, I found I was you know, just a little bit too slow. I started thickening up, you know. Some of you see my pictures there, you can kind of see that. And then I was watching, so I was watching TV. I was stationed in Los Angeles, and I watched TV, and wrestling's getting popular then. I thought I can do that, because I was quite agile for my size. You know? I remember I used to jump up on a Wall and turn a backflip and all that stuff. Now I can't even put my foot on the wall. Um, so, um, let me see. Oh, after for for four years I couldn't get off the ground in the program, and uh, I believed in God. Always did. I. I went to a meeting up in Paradise about four years later, and some woman talking. She said the right thing at the right time about 
uh, faith and trust and everything. I don't know what happened, but I had that spiritual awakening when I started swelling up. It felt like a big balloon or a big tumor and everything. And I said, i got to talk, i got to talk. And, and I just started sobbing, all this stuff started coming out. So within a matter of a minute or so, I guess, I got rid of 40-something years of wreckage and garbage of the past. You know. Been pretty clear sailing ever since. Um, if I have any advice for anybody, and it's worked for me, can't say about anybody else, is having the concept of a higher power, was number one. Going to meetings uh, all these years without falling away uh, was two. Reading, you know, doing the steps of three, and you know, then the literature. And when I did that, things would come easier and easier. Um, here's a joke. Somebody at the men's focus group last one, then I'll shut this off. He said, you know why men were invented? Of course, none of us know. He said, because vibrators don't mow lawns. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so in closing, uh, I'll leave you with this thought. Never talk about an alligator's mama before you cross the river. That sound okay. <laughs> Thank you now. questions for the Ask It Basket for up to 10 minutes. i got to say, at first I was uh, a little bit nervous. And in the other sessions, there were like 40 or 50 questions, and the moderator had to sit through them all. And then everybody's were a bunch of guys. I'd be lucky to get like three or four. But we've got some really interesting ones. Um, so the first one, Jim, is for you. Uh, question about how much weight did you lose and what, uh, what do you eat? And, Lou, that, that's a question for you as well. Um, Jim, uh, the my top weight's about 10 pounds from where I am now, so I'm not one of those people that's lost 100 pounds or whatever. What I've gotten is stability with it. So uh, uh, the thing that keeps me coming back is the insanity, and that's and if, I know I like living sane better than I do the other. And the insanity before was thinking about food all the time. Even if I wasn't 100 pounds overweight, it's like I'd wake up in the morning thinking about what to eat. I'd eat the first meal, think about how to prevent you from seeing the meal in between the first and the second meal. Then I'd eat the second meal, make it look really good so that you would think I was doing okay. And then I'd munch and munch and munch. And I'm a grazer. I'm not a binger, uh, which basically means I just eat all day long. And I'm not like a night eater or anything like that. It's just graze all day. Wake up in the morning, open the cabinets, and I can just eat forever. Um, and the other one, that, uh, what, the, yeah, food, food plan right now, and that has changed over the years. I'm a vegetarian, and so once you eliminate meat and you eliminate sugar, which I don't eat, um, it annoys the hell out of a lot of people trying to feed me. But um, uh, currently, what I'm working at is just a calorie counting thing. Uh, I don't eat sugar uh, and don't eat meat, and 
And so, and, and it's, I don't even worry about like three meals, nothing in between or something like that. It's more just adding up calories for the day and that's working for me now. Will it work for me in five years? I have no idea. Did it work for me five years ago? No. You know, then I had an actual food plan with a list and it, this is what you eat and this is what you don't and not eating out and all that kind of stuff. This is working now. So uh, I just keep asking HP what to do and if and and this is where I am today. So um, sometimes I just get really uh, feeling good about, I wonder what's going to happen next. You know, it's, it's not like excitement. I don't do excitement. I don't do enthusiasm and all of that because those are too scary. What I do do is, is get hopeful. And I go, well, I wonder what's going to be next and trust HP to fill it. Thank you. And Lou, there was also a question for you as to what do you eat now? Time's gotten away from us a little bit, it's, uh, so I'm going to summarize the last few questions. There, there is a consistent thread. Um, let me read them all, and then maybe Jim and Lou, you can give your, your thoughts towards them. Uh, one is, what do you feel you cannot say at an OA meeting, predominantly attended by women? By women, uh, it is said that men in OA have a woman's disease. How can we successfully get men in OA since 90% of our membership is women? Why is it necessary to have men's meetings? Is it because there because there are issues that only pertain to men? What are those issues? Uh, Jim again. Um, the the idea of of having men's only meetings. Uh, I'm not sure that is necessary. I I know for some people it is. Uh, 
and that's just my experience. I don't have a lot of experience in going to men's groups, per se, uh, and the idea of what can I not talk about in a women's group, that, a group with women that I, I, there isn't anything. Uh, my issue is, is this a safe place to say anything, whether there are men or women there? Um, uh, when I first got in program, I was dating somebody in program and talked about what was going on and pretty soon it was like, these are my meetings, these are your meetings, you can't go to my meetings kind of thing, and that sucked. Um, and I learned from that. <laughs> you know, so she said, basically, all the meetings in, in this county are not mine and you can't go kind of thing, you know. And um, so it, it, the issue of what I can talk about in terms of recovery, I don't find a problem with that. And um, uh, that just may be me. That just may be me. And like I said, I, I, I think I've gone to maybe two um, men's stag meetings in 28 years. Just because the times I can go, there aren't any. And so I just go to regular meetings and talk about stuff. So the idea of getting more men in, um, I don't know what to do with that in terms of, um, uh, in terms of OA as a whole, in terms of numbers declining. There are cultural things going on and all of that too. Um, but it, it is a disease that is more commonly seen as female and so I think men are less likely to do it. The other thing is who's more likely to go for help? Who's more likely to ask for help? Who's more likely to go for any meds, any medical attention, any anything? It's women, not men. So it's a much tougher reach for a man to come in and say, I need help, I can't control my eating. A woman can do that and doesn't get the same response. The other very fast thing is when I got thinner, I noticed there were more women watching me. And in a meeting with a lot of women, that allows for a lot of people watching me who weren't watching me before and a lot of anxiety around that. And so uh, that's just something to be aware of. And then it was good to talk to other men about what to do with that and to be clear about my own sexuality with that. Is, you know, is this something that I'm going to get, get off balance on because of that attention that wasn't ever there before and all of a sudden it's there. Uh, and again, you get that sense of intimacy from sharing and women will run with that, my, my experience. Um, when I went out for the first... Um, we, we went to a retreat and I asked my wife out to take a walk. That's how we started our relationship. Uh, she got grief from every other woman at the retreat. How did you get to talk, walk with him? How did he, why did he talk to you? Her sponsor was, wanted me too. And so when she went to her sponsor, her sponsor said, ah, you got to go. And I, it was like this whole big thing. So it's really helpful to kind of know where I am. <laughs> <laughs> and to not get sucked into that. Uh, it's not a safe place for somebody like me to be in. Thanks. All right. It is now time to close this session. Let's thank our speakers and all who have done service for the session. Right. Please stand and join hands as we close uh, with I Put My Hand in Yours.
Power.